He's cute. Does he like you as much as you like him? Grandma, would you please just drop it? Hey, Mom! Look at me! Smile! My name is Salmon. Like the fish. Okay, shipmate. Take it away. First name, Susie. Bye, Dad. Bye, Susie. You are beautiful, Susie Salmon. I was 14 years old when I was murdered. You're the Salmon Girl, right? On December 6, 1973. We didn't find her, Mrs. Salmon. I'm very sorry. with a stranger. It had to be someone she knew. I've got a name for you. This is police work. This is what we do. My father had the pieces, but he couldn't make them fit. You have a tomb in the middle of your house. I waited for justice, but justice did not come. You're a seven girl, right? Dad! There's definitely something wrong with this guy. Why won't you listen to him? Because you need evidence. You need proof. everybody to another episode of GC8. I'm Johanna. I'm Rosie. And I'm Eric. And this week we are continuing our exploration of Peter Jackson's work and talking about The Lovely Bones, which is a little bit of a departure from Jackson's other work. And we'll dig into it pretty soon. But first, I, I have to confess, I'm still thinking about Meet the Feebles. It <laughs> haunts me. I blame you, Rosie, for taking us down this dark path. <laughs> I blame myself, and I have only myself to blame for that one because it still slightly disturbs me, too, at times when I don't want it to. So I've been trying to use my magic mind eraser to get rid of that film from my brain, but it's probably going to go into, into the same corner of my brain that Mr. Bungle does. You people, I swear. <laughs> All I had to hear was, this movie haunts me, and like I wanted to peel my skin off. I don't get it, because this is the movie that haunts me and makes me want to peel my skin off. But we will, we will get to that. First, I don't think we have any record to correct this week. No, this was my attempt to correct the record. If you had any thoughts after our last episode of going to explore Meet the Feebles yourselves, you know, just a friendly you know, product warning, you will have intrusive thoughts. 
You will have images of puppets fucking that just float into your mind at the most inopportune moment. Reconsider. <laughs> I still have sodomy. You may think it's very odd of me. Like that song is stuck in my head. <laughs> Uh, all right well it was interesting to have those images floating through my head as i was watching the lovely bones and thinking about peter jackson as a director and how he treats this very sensitive material i've said it before we're film nerds we're like the av room geeks at school we're just this nerdy pop culture history podcast the real cool kids of the podcasting world are the true crime podcasts. They're like the rock stars of podcasting that we wish we could be. I said it before when we were talking about New Zealand and that disappearance case. Well, in the course of making today's show, I found another great true crime podcast. The podcaster's name is Erin Fleming, and her show is called Red Rum Blonde. Red Rum! Red Rum! Red Rum Blonde. <laughs> If I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes. I discovered Red Rum Blonde because it was the only podcast that I could find that covered a crime I was researching, probably because she lives close to the crime scene. It summarizes most of what I discovered in my research. The episode was called The Murder of Debbie Makel. Debra or Debbie Makel. I've heard it pronounced Mackle and Makel. Mackle like mackerel or Makel like a Mako shark. Either way, like a fish. Go listen to it now. Come back and we'll still be here. It's about an eight-year-old Pennsylvania girl who disappeared on her way home from school on October 5th, 1973. And like a lot of Gen X kids, we talked about this before, Rosie and I did. She was a latchkey kid. You know, she she had a key. She'd come home to an empty house. She had two brothers, but they didn't take the bus that day. So she was last seen by a jogger and her stuff was found in the house. So we think she made it home. But when her family arrived home, she was nowhere to be found. They started to get worried around dinner time. Two days later, her body was found covered by branches and brush near the foundations of an old distillery. Uh, she had been raped and strangled. Something that Red Rum Blonde doesn't talk about, but I found pretty interesting, was that the sheriff in charge of the case, sheriff's deputy in charge of the case for many, many years, lived across the street from her. That may not be that unusual about the sheriff living across the street when you consider that the town... I don't know what the population was in 1973, but according to Wikipedia anyway, the, and the 2010 census, the population is less than 500 people today. This place is in the middle of nowhere. Any stranger would have been noticed, even if they were just driving through. So someone has to know something. In 2003, they extracted what they believe is the DNA of the killer, but there's no match. And this is still a cold case today, if you have any information, Crime Watch PA, all one word, CrimeWatchPA for Pennsylvania.com, takes anonymous tips. You can read more about the cold case there. That's my little uh, media plug for something to check out, Red Rum Blonde. Specifically, that episode will give you a good background to the inspiration for today's story, which is based on a book. So, Johanna, why don't you tell us about the book? 
So this book came out in 2002. And in 2002, I was 14, which is, I think, the same age as the character. So this story hit me really close to home when I first read it. It has taken on additional resonance as I have been through some stuff <laughs> in life and, you know, can can appreciate some some of the delicacy with which Alice Siebold treats the the violence and the sexual violence in this book. Um, at the time when I was 14, I was addicted to crime thrillers. <laughs> so, and, and didn't really have a sense of how the majority of them treat the female victims as objects, don't humanize, go out of their way to humanize them really at all, and center the male detective against, you know, the male killer in a lot of these stories. And... This this version of that, you know, traditional crime thriller narrative from the point of view of the female victim and not just a female victim, but a young girl, the framing of it as a coming of age story from the point of view of someone who's dead makes this a really unique twist on the genre to begin with. Some of the things that struck me about the book was the relative mundane portrait of heaven in the story that, you know, heaven is having fashion magazines and your favorite flavor of ice cream and that it was very unadorned and grounded in, in a sense of reality, which I appreciated. The other things that struck me, the opening of the book brings you right there to the moment when she is kidnapped. And we'll talk about how this is rendered cinematically in the film, but kidnapped raped and murdered within the first chapter. And you wonder, oh gosh, <laughs> now where are we going from here? And the portrait of her as someone who gets to grow up by observing her family and what they're going through and getting to see her mother have a fling and then run off and getting to see her younger sister grow up and getting to see her little brother, you know, and sort of interact with them, but, you know, from a distance. It was really a unique story. Just a couple other notes on Alice Siebold. She wrote another book called Lucky. It's a memoir of her experience being raped as a freshman in college. And I think her personal connection to this sort of violence explains how she was able to so realistically portray the trauma experience that Susie goes through and the sense of being thrown out of one's body during that trauma and also the inability to let go of that thing, the inability to move into a new version of life where that event doesn't control who you are and determine what matters to you. I think it's a very careful portrayal and I'm eager to hear what the two of you think of the film adaptation. Before we do that, Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about 2009, the year this came out? Um, yeah. Okay. So 2009, it was the year that brought us the uh, H1N1 pandemic. It was first discovered early in 2009 and slowly grew into a pandemic, which eventually China did develop a vaccine for by the end of the year. That was also the year Barack Obama became our 44th president, also the first African-American president of the United States. 
Iceland suffered a huge financial collapse, and due to that financial collapse, their prime minister was forced to resign, and uh, they brought about the first openly gay prime minister who really turned the country around. I will totally trip up her name, but her first name is Johanna, so that's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) UNESCO launched the World Digital Library. That was also the year Windows 7 was released. That's a very Cliff Notes version of the year 2009. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the Once we get into this, I'm not going to be playing happy go to the lobby music. So we're going to get our snacks first. I thought about what to do for this, and I decided it was going to be something to drink. And no, it's not Coca-Cola, you sick bastards. Um, I thought about cooking sherry, but one, gross, and two, you're going to need something stronger. And so I went back and I looked at the most popular cocktail of 1973, which also happens to be the most popular cocktail of the 70s, a Harvey Wallbanger. Uh, Because we're soon going to be talking about a guy named Harvey, and you're really going to want to bang his head into a wall. Mm Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the Harvey Wallbanger, the most popular drink of 1973, the year this movie was set, is made with Galliano, an Italian liqueur named after Major Giuseppe Galliano. It's sort of sweet and spicy. And it's I think it's kind of related to chartreuse and uh, absinthe and stuff like that. If you ever go to a bar, it's that big, tall bottle in the back that nobody ever orders and it's just completely full because nobody ever gets anything out of it. I just have to mention that I worked in the restaurant business for about 20 years on and off, and I never once ever saw a bartender use that in a drink. That's all I'm <laughs> going to say. That's all I'm going to say. When we were kids, they would have been going through those bottles all the time. I would have been the bartender cousin about the person who wanted the drink using alcohol from that bottle. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not messing with a bottle that's half my height. Sorry. Well, since we are a bit of a history podcast, I should explain who Major Giuseppe Galliano is. He was a hero of the first Italo-Ethiopian War. And according to the book, The Battle of Adwa, African Victory in the Age of Empire by Raymond Jonas, in a letter to the enemy commander, Ross McConan, this is Ross Waldy Michael McConan, not his son, Roz Tafari McConan, who was still in power at the time of our story and who our listeners might be familiar with as Rastafari, the <laughs> inspiration for Rastafarianism. Anyway, Galliano wrote this to Roz McConan. To His Highness, Roz McConan, commander of the Shoan advance guard from the commander of the fort at Mekele. How are you? I am well, thanks be to God. My soldiers are very well, as I hope yours are too. My king has ordered me to remain here and I will not move. Do what you have to do. I assure you that I have fine rifles and very fine cannon. Your friend, Galliano. So on February 29, 1896, he led his 15,000 troops against the 120,000 Abyssinians, and they were all killed to the last man, including Giuseppe Galliano. And now he's remembered mostly as the liqueur that's named after him, mm. except maybe in Italy. I don't know. So 
Here is the bartender's black book recipe for a Harvey Wallbanger. Fill glass with ice, one and a half ounces vodka, fill with orange juice, top with Galliano, garnish with orange. And if you want a frozen version in a blender, you do a half cup of ice, one and a half ounces of vodka, dash of orange juice, half scoop of orange sherbet, and blend until smooth, top with Galliano. So there you go. There is your nice, sweet, but strong drink, and you're going to need it. I just have to applaud you for choosing a drink that also somehow captures the color palette of this film. (laughs) While I was watching it, like the sequences that take place in real world 1970s all have this like slightly orangey tinge that also somehow smells of vodka, like even through the screen. So (laughs) nice work. (laughs) Orange is like the color of the 70s. It really is. (laughs) The 70s was like orange. We had a whole set of orange dishes when I was a kid. Like, it seemed like orange was just the thing. Oh, yeah. I remember the orange Tupperware my family had. Like, the orange Tupperware cups, plates, storageware, everything. Orange. So at the beginning, Johanna said that this is a bit of a departure for Peter Jackson, but I don't think so. If we were just doing this film and not going into the whole Lord of the Rings... The two films that I would have had lead into this would definitely have been 1994's Heavenly Creatures, another true crime story, and then The Frighteners in 1996. This film, to me, is a throwback to the kind of films he was making before The Lord of the Rings. I kind of went into this movie knowing that this girl was going to be murdered, and I knew that we were going to have to walk through the buildup to that, and then the aftermath. And as a mom, I've mentioned before, it's really hard for me to watch children being murdered in a film or abducted or anything like that. Watching the build up to that, I'm glad it was there, of course. I'd like to know the background of the family, the circumstances surrounding that, what the character's life was like prior to their murder. I'm glad that that part of the story was there. It was obviously important. A family living in a somewhat decent neighborhood, kids walk to and from school every day, and she cuts through a cornfield to get to and from school, which we all know in movies, that's not always a good thing. <laughs> Cornfields are bad. Cornf- yeah, corn- nothing yeah. good. There's nothing good that ever happens in a cornfield. Like, no. It's just- <laughs> no, no, there never is. So we watched the development of this story and, you know, the dreamy boy that finally showed interest in her that she had been thinking about for such a long time. Saoirse Ronan, there's something very charismatic about her, right? So she was perfectly cast. Just a beautiful young girl. Just, I mean, this would have been bad happening to anyone, but can you think of a more like angelic looking actress? She's so sweet. It almost gives you cavities just watching her in everything that she's in. Mm-hmm. And Saoirse Ronan now is like in her late 20s, right? So she's not a young girl anymore. She was like 14 to 15 when this was made. But every social Ronin film, even to this day, is innocent girl learns hard lessons about life in one (laughs) form or another. (laughs) That is the niche that Saoirse inhabits. Sorry, Saoirse. She's incredible in atonement. I mean, just just incredible. And, you know, she'd been in a couple of films and TV shows before then, but atonement was really her breakout role. And playing 
interesting, complicated young women and complicated in ways that women don't always get to be complicated. She always seems to attend the school of hard knocks at some point in the narrative, but often her character complication is something a little bit more like, like she doesn't understand the world and is having trouble coming to grips with that or that she feels overlooked in a way that's not just like sexually overlooked the way, you know, a lot of teen girl narratives go. So she's great in this. Perfect. And then of course, Peter Jackson also gets the, um, the time really right, which is amazing because he's not from the U S I dug the little bookstore ad for Lord of the Rings, (laughs) which was period appropriate, by the way, it was the U S second Ballantine edition, which is the one that I had. And so much of it was right spot on for me too. Like I had the same red Schwinn bike she had. I had the same, I had one of those Vivitar cameras that had the little roll of film that you would plunk in and out. Okay. Before we get to the main event here, the thing that starts the action in motion here, I got to say that the author criticized the film for not showing the rape slash murder. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. No one thought that was a good idea. Peter Jackson thought it would overwhelm the rest of the film and be traumatizing to the young actress. Stanley Tucci said it was hard enough doing that scene without that. And Saoirse said, who wants to see a 14-year-old girl get raped? Exactly. You know? That valid, valid point. Nobody. You know that it happened. It doesn't need to be filmed and played out in grave detail. That's... That's one mistake that they make in a lot of movies. It's like, I understand you're trying to get the point across, but there's so many different ways to get the point across for the audience to interpret it, to, you know, know exactly what happened. Well, Alice Siebold would disagree with you. Right. Well, she's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just, just a compromise somewhere between the film and Alice Siebold, like making it clear that this character is also... A survivor even though she's dead if that if that makes any sense like mm-hmm. that's narratively important and i think the film is maybe just a bit too vague about whether she was raped and then killed or just murdered mm-hmm. and if you know the story like you know what happened and if you've seen enough other serial killer films then the fetishization of the victim implies that there was sexual violence involved, but it's very graphic in the book. Like I, I still remember like there's a line in the book where it talks about how when he removes her clothes that she has like classic cotton white underwear and that this is something really important to the killer, like that he makes a comment about it. And so it's, it's like the book. This is Squiffy uh, just talking about it. Like, can you imagine putting that on a screen 50 feet wide? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying that it should have been more graphic. I'm saying that it sometimes it felt like the movie was going out of its way to avoid including that narrative element. Not mm-hmm. not that I wanted to see it happen. Like, I actually think that the the general approach that they took of, of showing the blood in the sink and, you know, the charm bracelet and the hair and... You and know, him like, in the bathtub. And him in the bathtub was so gross. Like, yeah. they definitely, like, the artistic approach was right. I think they maybe just, it didn't, I mean, knowing the story, I was able to fill in the gaps, but I wonder if you didn't read the book, whether you would. Well, Sersha had uh, 
the thing she most often says is, you know, who wants to see a 14 year old get raped? I wouldn't want to do that anyway, you know, but I've also mm-hmm. heard her mention her parents wouldn't have let her be in the film if that had been in there. But also right. an argument she frequently makes uh, when asked about this is that it interrupts the character's arc. Part of it, at least for her, is she doesn't know she's dead at that point. So the audience is in her shoes, more or less. She doesn't know. She goes running down the street, bumps into the jogger, all of that stuff. It's not until that bathtub scene that she realizes that she's dead. What I really loved about the scene with her running is that that sort of escapist reaction that people going through trauma have of like, literally leaving their body behind and in order to be in some other place so that they don't see the traumatic thing that's happening to them. And that that's why, you know, sexual assault victims have trouble recounting details about the incidents is because in a lot of ways, they try their best not to be there. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like that, that rendering in the film felt very, very immediate in terms of a visual representation of that sort of reaction to trauma. I thought it was very well done. I agree with that. As a victim myself, I will say, like, even as it's happening, you're blocking it out. So you don't want to relive those memories. And that's also a reason why a lot of people don't report. They don't want to have to keep reliving it. They don't want to relive it going to the going to the authorities to report it. They don't want to relive it in court. And then so oftentimes they don't report it. And, and, you know, that's where a lot of the victim blaming comes in. But, you know, it's like you have to be a victim of that to truly understand. It's not something that you want to live through. And, and, and reporting that makes you do that. So for them to show it in that way, I felt was very valid and very accurate for her to just leave her body running down the street, not knowing that she's dead. I, when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, you know, after after it happened, about a scene or two later, I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. And, and that kind of pushed things into the next chapter. That was a good transition to show. You know, I'm a big fan of the site tvtropes.org, and we've talked about this before, at least Johanna and I have. If there's not a trope for this, there needs to be one that all goth girls can see the undead. Because, like, this is, you know, I can just hear, like, from Beetlejuice, I myself am strange and unusual. (laughs) And even as the mom in Stranger Things, she could still, like, she was still, like, communicating with the upside down. So, all all goth girls can see the undead. I don't know. I don't know why, but yeah. Can we wait? Can we talk about Stanley Tucci? Can we just make sure we talk about Stanley Tucci as Mr. Harvey? Yes. Who, whose head we want to bang into a wall. What a performance. Mm. I mean, by God, like, st- you know, the first I didn't I didn't look too much ahead of time before watching the film. I wanted to be like fresh eyes on it. And it actually took me a few minutes to be like, no, no, it can't be. Yeah. <laughs> So it can't be because you didn't recognize him? Yeah, he was just like completely disappeared into that role. And he's usually so slick. And to see him with pedophile glasses was a very new experience. Well, apparently Stanley Tucci was wigged out enough about the material. I don't know if he's a method actor. I don't know what school of acting he comes from. But a lot of actors, they have to reach inside themselves to find some part of that character. So he wanted to be as completely 
opposite of himself as he could possibly be. So not only did he dye his like hair on his head, he dyed his freaking arm hair for this role. Oh wow. <laughs> he bleached his arm hair. He that's the extremes to which he tried to change his appearance. He completely he had skin bleachings and all sorts of things to to look and I didn't recognize him either. It was only about partway through where I'm like, who is that? You know? <laughs> and I looked it up and I was like, oh, wow. Stanley Tucci's jawline gives him away every time for me. <laughs> well, and, you know, to your point, Eric, about how do you get into a role like this? I mean, one of the things that the novel is known for is not giving you very much of a backstory or motivation for the killer. Like, it doesn't spend a lot of time trying to humanize Mr. Harvey or give him a personality or make you think, oh, that's why he rapes and kills little girls. Like the book very intentionally stays away from trying to make him an interesting character and spends all its time developing Susie from beyond the grave. And so I can imagine being an actor trying to, you know, like, what's my motivation? Where am I coming from? And to have the source material very deliberately say, nope. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> I don't know how filled with illusions the book is. The movie certainly is. And some of them really don't work for me. As literary illusions go, Othello, I found kind of weak. Like the boyfriend is like, he calls himself the Moor and all that. And of course, in, in Othello, the Moor is the one that kills her. But anyway, um, Desdemona is killed by by Othello, you know, but okay, not to stretch that too far, but if they were going for star-crossed lovers, Tristan and Isolde or Romeo and Juliet would have been way better than Othello, in my opinion. Also, Holly Golightly from Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's, that seemed like a really left-field kind of illusion, and they make a big deal about it, too. <laughs> I'm like, okay... But there's also a lot of visual motifs in this. And I'm going to do something we haven't done before. I'm going to throw out a motif and get your guys' reactions. All right. So I'm going to start with Rosie. Lighthouses. She always goes back to the lighthouse. So I feel like that is almost a, almost a symptom or almost a symbol of her trauma because she keeps going back to the lighthouse. But because the lighthouse is eventually attached to Mr. Harvey's home. Two things came to mind. One is it's a guy it's meant to be a guide. It's meant to, you know, show show you obstacles in your path and, you know, light the way for people. But maybe it's also a phallic symbol. I I don't know. Like <laughs> um, nope, nope. I'm, I'm seeing Rosie's reaction. I'm not sure. No, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm whether... just like, no, 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 what I, I mean, yeah, it's totally phallic. And it's completely and totally phallic. And it is kind of ironic that it, it that it was eventually, you know, like it looked like it was attached to Mr. Harvey's house. And that gee, creeps me out. <laughs> Not only does it light your way, but it also can only show you one thing at a time. What's interesting about it, thinking of it in terms of like that she's trying to get over this thing that happened to her. But in a lot of ways, she keeps intentionally shining the light on it and refocusing on this thing that she really needs to stop looking for and stop looking at. See, I took it more like she was trying to signal from beyond the grave. Um, and that, that the lighthouse was like her trying to signal her family, her father or sister, whatever, you know, Hey, over here, over here, you know, but 
Next motif, red flowers. I don't think they were roses, but red flowers of some sort. It seems like they represent the beauty of being a young girl. Not necessarily purity, but um, possibility and vibrant life. When Mark Wahlberg is holding the flower in his hand and it goes from being dead to being alive and he sort of sees what has been lost. Okay, so I just googled this and it said although this is portrayed by daffodils in the novel it's portrayed by red flowers sometimes interpreted as roses in the 2000 it says 2007 film adaptation that has to be a typo they are lovely and young but wither and die when cut from their stems they i thought they looked more like peonies though not roses but i could be wrong yeah i originally thought they were roses and then i'm like no i think they're peonies but i don't know did you notice the scene where he was painting these flowers for the dollhouses and the already red flowers he was painting with red that kind of creeped me out later down the road in the movie rosie snow globe the penguin is trapped in the snow globe it start the movie starts out she always felt like the penguin was trapped in the snow globe and then later she's trapped in a version of purgatory trying to make her way to heaven and she's still communicating with her family and recovering from the trauma that caused her to die. Gazebo. Ooh. I guess the gazebo is kind of like an in-between place where you get to be outdoors and indoors all at once. Now, of course, unfortunately, I'm thinking of that John Mulaney bit where he talks about, have you, have you heard this bit where he makes a joke about a gazebo that was created in like 1863 somewhere in Connecticut and he's saying like can you imagine like taking a break you know they've just read off the dead and and then um like ladies and gentlemen how would you like to be outdoors and indoors all at once so mm-hmm. um anyway sorry that was that was that was a very unfortunate digression um but i yes i think of the gazebo as an in between place all right sinkhole Sinkhole in this film was where you got rid of things that you didn't use anymore. I mean, people threw all kinds of things in there and which today would never, ever fly. But <laughs> I, I look at the sink, the, the sinkhole is, is a place where you bury the past. Can I just jump in here just to talk about the actual plot area that happens around the sinkhole? Is this meant to be a pivotal moment where instead of trying to catch the killer and like prompting Ray and Ruth to like go out there and stop whatever's happening. Instead, she chooses to be with them and chooses to be with Ray and they sort of like lose their chance to, to stop that safe from being thrown into the sinkhole is like, is that kind of like a a pivotal moment where she starts letting go or what, what did you think was happening during that scene? Okay. Um, this opens up a big sinkhole (laughs) because we'll have to get into my reaction to the overall film. Let's hold on to that for a second because I want to get to one last motif. And I also want to talk about a couple of minor things before I get to the big sinkhole. So remind me to get back to the sinkhole, but icicles. Icicles for me represent this idea that all things must change, nothing is permanent, allowing things to 
transform and move on. The fact that she uses the icicle, this symbol of of transformation and change in order to, I mean, she doesn't, maybe she doesn't do it herself, but that that ultimately is what kills Harvey is, I, I think, enforces that idea. Um, I think you're right on that. That's, you know, because water throughout its life takes many forms, one of them being ice. It eventually melts, turns to water. You know, it, it is definitely a, a symbol of transformation um, and that all good things do come to an end. Yeah, I wish I had my pocket Dow handy because then I'd go go read. I've got five or six pages marked that are all just about water and the Dow. Okay, there are a couple other things I want to talk about before I get to the big sinkhole. We talked about Saoirse Ronan and we also talked about Stanley Tucci. We should mention Mark Wahlberg mm-hmm. because he was a last minute replacement in this film. Originally, it was supposed to be uh, Ryan Gosling. Who? Oh, wow. Ooh. Oh, Mark Wahlberg was so much a better choice. So much a better choice. <laughs> I, I mean, I and Gosling knew that, I think. He gained a bunch of weight for the role in t- without telling Peter Jackson, stuff like that. But more sources say that Gosling himself thought he was wrong for the role. He was too young to have a daughter that was 14. Honestly, Wahlberg is much more a working class guy. He mm-hmm. He just seems to fit the role much better. Yeah, and I, I think Gosling does really great work, but how horrifying would it have been if teams of women had come to the theater saying like, oh, I'm going to see Ryan Gosling's new film <laughs> and like come come into the theater with that intention. That would have been very unfortunate. And it might have been an interesting career move for Gosling at the time to like, oh, no, nope, I am no longer that heartthrob guy anymore. Now I'm a serious actor. <laughs> so he's done that now. I mean, I really like The Nice Guys. He's great in that with Russell Crowe and, you know, a couple other performances. Lars and the real girl is, is him also, and he's great in that. But yeah, he would have been so wrong for this part. Some sources say he was added to the cast the day before they started filming. <laughs> the other performance we got to talk about, the mom is good, her sister's good, but we, we got to talk about Susan Sarandon. Oh, oh yeah. yes. I'm sorry, but could she not have been more fabulous than how she looked in this movie? You could tell she was coming off of the swing in 60s where, you know, anything went. So she was drinking and popping pills for breakfast. And (laughs) she was just she was just amazing. She introduces this idea that everyone grieves differently. That's an important theme. But also, Mm -hmm. like, it was a really nice interlude to see her playing with the bubbles with the younger brother. There was some nice comic relief and like happy emotions that you desperately need in this film. Like you need that tension to be loosened up and Susan Sarandon's character is great for that. And she knew it too. She knew that that was the role she was fulfilling in this otherwise really dark film. There needed to be some comic relief. But I think it's time to go down the sinkhole. Are you guys ready to go down this sinkhole with me? Because I'm just going to I'm throwing everything but the kitchen sink into the sinkhole. All right. Okay. All right. Let's do this. We'll stand at the edge until the last moment and then probably fall in with you. (laughs) (laughs) This film is my least favorite Peter Jackson film. I feel he was the wrong director for it. Uh, Despite the fact that one of the reasons we're watching it is for the fantasy elements. Again, he has the Lucas syndrome where he's a good technical director. So he's good at directing the special effects and all that, but not so good at the human drama. 
I didn't hate it. I liked it, but I just kind of liked it. And there's a lot I didn't like about it. All right, here we go. I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of the stuff that bothered me. The Final Kiss. I was like, is, was this a young adult novel? It was really soft-pedaled. Why weren't the family suspects? Think of the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Any kind of crime like this, the family's the first suspects. Especially the father. Especially the father. Mm-hmm. And they were never suspects in this. The death of Mr. Harvey was awful convenient, the whole icicle thing. It's like she could have done that at any time. A lot of things were inadequately explained. Why did the mother leave? Why did the mother come back when she came back? Mm-hmm. I feel like it didn't know what it wanted to be about. I was hoping it would be like a better version of Ghost, where Susie would help her sister uncover the murder and or avoid being killed too. But she didn't have a lot of interaction with the human world. She did cause a candle to flicker at one point, And of course, she communicated with the goth girl a couple of times. But And then, of course, there was the ghost body possession final kiss thing, you know, the just like in Ghost. Or was it supposed to be that she couldn't rest until she was avenged? But the death of the killer was so quick and perfunctory that that didn't really feel like revenge to me. Or she couldn't rest until she had her first kiss? Or was it supposed to be about letting go of her for her dad? Or was it about her letting go of her father or her letting go of life? It was just too confused. And they spent a ton of time creating these like gorgeous looking scenery. It reminded me a little of a wrinkle in time that way, where they spent all this time on the effects, but the story's kind of lost. And that's kind of the way I felt about this movie. Could have been worse, though. It could have been Twister. That movie was completely based on special effects, and that was it. It was terrible. It's still my least favorite movie. I would not put it in the same category as Twister at all. (laughs) Right. Or Anaconda. Or Anaconda. That was another bad one for that. Oh, we're going to have to watch Anaconda. All right. All snakes movies. We'll do a whole series of snake-related films. Yeah, Anaconda, snakes on a... And motherfucking plane. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Do not tempt me. No, but point being, this film, it just isn't quite there. It's like, it's pretty, and you feel like there's a message, but you never really know what that message is. Unlike, say, Saoirse Ronan was in Lady Bird, there's a film that didn't have one distinct message. I've heard Saoirse describe it as like a photo album in a girl's life, but it held together better than this film does. And Mm -hmm. Johanna, being the only one of us who's read the book and seen the movie, (laughs) do you agree that they probably could have picked a better director for this? Yes. I would have loved it if a woman had directed this film, for instance. That might have been a nice idea by anybody. I said in the beginning that this felt like a departure. And in part, it's because Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are so dude focused. But even in those films, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit trilogy, Peter Jackson went out of his way to make female characters where there really were none. Arwen is a non-character in the Lord of the Rings books. And I don't remember any female characters at all in The Hobbit. I was trying to be very critical of his portrayal of the assault and also of women characters in Lovely Bones in general, just to see, am I okay with the fact that he directed this story that touches on things that are so deeply personal to me? I actually thought that he did an okay job. I felt like he captured the horror of what happened without objectifying her in any way, which 
I don't think would be easy to do, especially if some of what people come to these movies for is exactly those things, you know, traditionally. And this is a tough story to deal with, that it's both a crime thriller with extremely dark elements and it's also a fault in our stars. Like, it's also like a teen romance. It's both of those things at the same time. And yeah, I guess I don't think it holds together. I also feel like the themes don't really coalesce into a meaningful arc where you feel tension building and you want something to happen. It's sort of more like you sit with Susie with these things and it doesn't move very much. You just kind of have to sit in, in those feelings for two hours. Mm -hmm. And because those are things that I relate to, like I felt connected to what was happening. Knowing the book made it a little easier to make a narrative out of what was happening. Showing her walk through the afterlife, eventually come through to the boyfriend through a medium. I mean, let's face it. The goth girl was a medium. She could hear the dead. I think she probably could see the dead. She probably also had the gift of being a medium too. And that's how that would have happened in the end. I fully believe that stuff happens. I've had some interesting experiences in my life. I can say that there's no way it's not possible. And it was interesting to watch it from a spiritual perspective. I felt some Catholic undertones in this movie. I mean, let's face it, they were in purgatory. They weren't in heaven yet. And they made that pretty clear in the film. So she was trying to sort all of her shit out, tie up all the loose ends that she possibly could while she was watching her family grieve over her and navigate through her assault and murder, not really knowing what happened. I mean, let's face it, they never found her body. We found her body watching the movie, but her family never found her body. Her family never really knew where it was, except for the goth girl. I think the goth girl knew. And it was just an interesting experience right as they were dumping her final resting place into the sinkhole. That's when she comes through the medium and kisses her boyfriend. And it was almost like she was kissing that part of the chapter goodbye and giving that boy some closure. But the final straw was when her attacker finally died. And it was interesting because it was right after a girl rejected him, which rejecting him as you watch the film is what caused him to kill some of his victims. It was a fascinating trip. I think some of the scenes that they had of the afterlife were a little bit roughly pieced together. You know, having like the night sky and the day sky and like, you know, different seasons represented in one thing and different terrains and environments, I guess you could say, represented in one thing just seemed like almost too much of a stretch. But we don't know what it looks like on the other side. If there is another side, it kind of explored the fact that when someone does cross over, you know, there's just a veil that it is possible that maybe the dead do watch over things until they finally cross over or in some way, maybe they have the capability of doing that. It really kind of just reminded me a lot of my religious upbringing, but also a lot of things that I learned along the way from being married to a seeker who studied a lot of different religions and was constantly struggling with what he really believed. So it was kind of neat because I learned a lot from his experience, from the things that he said, and then seeing it played out in this film, it was pretty fascinating. Okay, well, we're going to leave it at that this week. I would say if you have any feedback, you can write us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word at gmail.com. I am not going to push any of our social media 
or anything like that this time. What I would like our listeners to do is to go to Crime Watch PA, C R I M E W A T C H P A dot com and look for Debbie Makel, Deborah Lynn Makel, the young girl who was killed in 1973. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary in 2023. It'll be the 50th anniversary of her death. And in a town that small, there's only a few hundred possible suspects. Mm -hmm. Somebody knows something. The killer is either still out there or dead. And they even have DNA sample of the killer. They believe they have a DNA sample of the killer. They just have nothing to match it to. So this is a totally solvable cold case. I'd like everybody to know about it, especially if you are like us who live or have lived near Pennsylvania. It's worth everybody at least having a look. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going to leave it. We're going to continue on. We've got the biggies coming up in Peter Jackson's career, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. And this is Rosie. Signing off. All goth girls can see the undead. Duh.